Hey everyone, welcome to another installment of our In the Weeds podcast. And In the Weeds is just a chance for me as a pastor um, and as a professor. Uh, there are things that we don't hit with certain passages, but that we would hit in the classroom or that are just a little bit of technical issues that might not make it into a sermon on a Sunday morning, but um, I think are pretty interesting, and I hope you do too. Um, if you aren't interested, that's okay. You can make it, see how far you make it through the this little episode, this podcast. But um, but yeah, today we want to talk a little bit about um, the temple cleansing account in the Gospel of John. We just preached on that. I just preached on that. And if you are interested, before you listen to this, maybe you should want to stop this and go back and listen to the sermon that's on October 30th of 2022 and to talk a little bit about the temple cleansing account in John. So, um, yeah, so basically this is about um, whether there are one or two accounts of the temple cleansing. Are there one or two episodes of a temple cleansing in the lifetime of Jesus, in the historical Jesus? And um, just so you—I always do this up front, because if you want to know what my position is without listening to the next 20 minutes, um, you can. So basically I'm going to take the position that there are two temple cleansing episodes in the lifetime and ministry of Jesus. Um, it is something of a minority position in New Testament scholarship, but um, yeah, I thought we would at least talk about it. So let me just walk through what the issue is. So John records an episode where Jesus disrupts the temple. This is typically called a temple cleansing, but um, nowhere in any of the passages does it talk about any sense of cleansing the temple. It's just a disruption in the activity in the temple court. So John records that in um, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Um, what's significant is that the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptics, they each have an account of, uh, of a temple disruption, uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. Uh, Mark is really the lengthiest of the three, um, but John's is actually the longer of all of them. So Luke is the shortest. It's just a couple verses. Um, Matthew has a little bit extra added on with interaction with the Pharisees and the, the rulers, the re religious temple rulers afterwards. But Mark is really the lengthiest. It talks about the disruption itself. But John is longer than than really any of those. So there's there's some differences in John's account and those that are in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so here are some of the differences, um, and then we'll get to what the most significant difference is. So um, you can buy, by the way, there are, there are resources that you can buy that puts all of these accounts kind of side by side. I have two. One is called A Harmony of the Gospels, and I'm looking on my shelf right now, and I cannot remember who the editor is, but A Harmony of the Gospels. I think you can also, there's, a, there's kind of a... Um, a popular level, um, uh, the, the, the Gospels in Stereo or something like that. Um, and then I have kind of my big academic book is a synopsis of the four Gospels. And you can get that in English. You can get it also with um, one Greek on the left-hand page and English on the right-hand page. But you can get these and line them up next to each other, and you can kind of see what some of the differences are. And this is one of the, one of the things that people who do kind of work on historical Jesus— um, and Gospels will do, they'll compare these accounts to talk about, okay, um, are they remembering the same event? Are they, um, 
Are they drawing from a similar source? How, how is all of this working? So here are some of the differences that John adds in his account. So in the other accounts, it simply talks about, like in the Mark account, it says, um, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. So it just talks about those who are selling and buying. But John adds in those who are selling cattle, those who are selling sheep, um, and he mentions those who are selling pigeons as well. Uh, he, he, John includes the money changers. But um, John, as we mentioned on in the sermon, John is actually the only gospel that mentions that Jesus makes a whip of cords. Um, and uh, so, and there's there's different ideas about what that could be. Um, it's an impromptu weapon, so to speak, or a, a shoeing device. Is probably something that is um, some some translations will say like a um, a whip of reeds, like he makes it out of branches or out of reeds. And rather than kind of whipping people, we tend to think of a whip as you know something that you're using on people or animals, but he's using this as kind of a shoeing device. And um, there's actually some, we might not get into it in this podcast, but it does bring questions up about um, Jesus is generally nonviolent. You'll notice, obviously, he doesn't resist when he's being killed. He doesn't, um, he denounces violence. Uh, this is the only time where we actually see Jesus kind of physically cajoling people or even using a weapon of some kind. So um, oftentimes in the debate about pacifism, nonviolence, um, this is a this is a passage that comes into play. So he adds the whip in there. And then he uses a couple different words for money changers. It's not not super significant. Um, the one significance that we have, the di- one of the differences is, when Jesus does this in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Jesus goes into the temple courtyards and he quotes two passages of Scripture. Isaiah 56, 7, which is, My house will be called a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. And then he says, But, and then he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. You have made it a den of thieves or a cave of robbers. You have made it a cave of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7, 11. And in the Gospel of John, these, these quotations of Scripture are excluded, but what is included as a Scripture is that his disciples remember that he says, uh, or, the, sorry, the disciples remember after the fact, after he dies, zeal for your house will consume me, which is Psalm 69.9. So they exclude, all three of the Gospels include the... Um, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a cave of robbers. John does not include that, but John is the only one who includes this memory of Psalm 69.9. So those are some significant differences in the passages. Um, but the most significant difference in the passages is the timing of the event. So the synoptics have a disruptive event at the temple that is at the end of Jesus's ministry. It comes after the triumphal entry where everyone's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then during that last week of Jesus's life, he goes in on Monday morning and he, he does this disruptive event. 
And um, it this this then occurs on his final visit to Jerusalem. And usually the the gospel writers will include this as kind of the the event that seals his fate. That it's after this that all the leaders are like, we can't put up with this guy. We got to figure out how to get rid of him. Um, and so they put it at the end of his ministry as kind of the last week of his life and as the event that kind of sets all of these things in motion. It event- essentially, this this event disrupting the temple and the commerce of the temple and and saying what he says gets him killed, okay? The most significant difference in John's account is that he has this event, or he records a disruptive event, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's essentially, as we talked about on Sunday, the first public event of Jesus' ministry. And so the question is, um, there's a number of questions that come up about this whole thing. Like, is this... is is this one event that's remembered differently? Are there two events? Um, what do we do with John's retelling of this event that is different? Like he's outnumbered three to one. If this is the same event, like is John recording a historical event or is he repurposing an event later in Jesus's life to put it earlier for thematic or theological reasons? So, um, so th- these are the these are the significant um, issues that come up in this particular um, event. So I want to talk a little bit about the ideas and, and what you could do with, with this event and what New Testament scholars have done over the years, okay? So um, uh, so option one, option one, we're talking about John's event, okay? John's event, option number one, that, um, that really, and this has been the, the majority position of modern New Testament scholars, really from... Uh, from the 1800s, so from the 17th, or, or from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, this has been the position of most New Testament scholars, that there is only one historical event, which is this temple disruption, temple cleansing, and that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have it chronologically correct. It happens at the end of Jesus's ministry. And basically their argument is that anyone who would have done such a large-scale event would have caught the attention and gotten on the radar of not only the Jewish religious leaders who oversee that temple courtyard, but also the Romans who, if there is a massive disruption in the temple courtyard, they have the Antonia Fortress kind of looking over the temple courtyard, and they may have rushed down to 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 stop this. So, um, so basically, the first option is that there's one there's one account, and the synoptic accounts account for it historically in the chronology of Jesus's ministry accurately, whereas John. John repurposes this account for theological and thematic reasons. Okay, so John, so essentially, John is not historically accurate, but is thematically or theologically accurate. So that option one is that John John is not historically correct. And actually, um, one of the some of the history of just gospel studies is that um, many people will look at the the synoptics as Hey, they're the ones who are kind of the 
this is, these historical accounts, but John John has been called um, a spiritual gospel. It's been um, that John might not be uh, historically accurate, but he's he's kind of thematically theologically doing something that's going on here. Um, and so so for one reason or another, um, John has not had kind of the uh, the historical. And again, when we talk about New Testament scholarship, we're talking about kind of the gambit of of faith and scholarship. There are some New Testament scholars are not um, believers, or they don't think that you know the, this is the Word of God inspired or or anything like that. So they have no kind of prior commitments. They're just looking at this as literature. And if they're looking historically at, hey, we're reconstructing a life of Jesus. What sources do we use? Um, and so they're looking at it in kind of through that lens. So. Um, option two, option two, and it kind of a little bit, um, overlaps with option one. Um, so option one, if you're like, if you have no commitments to, you know, holding that John is, is accurate. Okay. Um, you're kind of a a secular scholar. You might be saying John is not historically correct. Option two, option two is there's one historical event and indeed the synoptics have it chronologically right. Um, but what we see in John is not historical inaccuracy, but rather that John moves it chronologically for a thematic or a theological point. And that th- there are there are actually a number of evangelical scholars that hold to that perspective. They believe that John is inspired, that John is part of God's word, but um, genre-wise and just in terms of intention, author's intention, that that they would say, look, John is not trying to give a historical per se account, but John is giving this kind of theological reflection on who Jesus is. And so by doing that, um, John is uh, John is more theological, more thematic, more spiritual, if you will. And so he's taking some liberties in terms of chronology. That's option two. Now that's that's the option that, Gary Burge holds. He's the um, in the NIV application commentary, um, and this is one of the the commentaries that I I'm using and leaning on as I prepare my sermons in John. Um, so that that's one. And there's actually a, a kind of a rich history of evangelical scholars that take such a position. That's actually, to be quite honest, um, as I have done my you know my seminary work and my PhD work. That was, uh, although I hadn't done a lot of work in John, that would have been really the the position that I would have kind of defaulted to, to be quite honest. Okay, um, option three is an option that I think has, um, though it has not been um, really well respected, really over the years. I do think that it is regaining um, a more uh, academic following, and that is this option, option three, that there are actually two historical temple disruptions. Um, Definitely one at the end of Jesus' ministry, like the synoptics give us, but that John is recording one that is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And um, uh, really, though this has been um, two temple cleansings or two temple disruptions, is dismissed almost out of hand by modern oh bless me by modern new testament scholars um this i think that this position actually has quite a bit of um plausibility to it and this is actually the the position that i hold to after doing some work in this area um 
And um, and this is really a lot of work has been done on this by Leon Morris, who has written uh, the Gospel according to John in the uh, what is this? This is the this is the New International Critical New Testament Commentary series. Um, uh, it's also held by um, Ed Clink or Mickey Clink's commentary in the Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament. Um, that's a Zondervan thing. And then, um, oh, there's one other I've got. Oh, it's D.A. Carson's um, D.A. Carson's commentary on John in the Pillar Commentary series. And these are all commentaries that I'm using in my particular um, study here. So, uh, so anyway, but here, one of the things, let me just talk a little bit about why I hold the position I do and um, why it has been a minority position in the history of New Testament scholarship. So, so one of the things that we kind of make note of, especially when you have like a synopsis of the Gospels or a harmony of the Gospels, is um, you have this phenomena of similar events in the Gospels, but with various different details in the Gospels. And what happens when we have a, an event that it's similar but with different details to it that most scholars will either um, will either um, kind of reject it as historical or try to harmonize, like conflate all the events together as, oh, they're just talking about the same event, but they're just remembering different details, or they'll count them as different incidents. And it can get a little touchy. So I'll give you an example. Um, one example, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, um, in Mark 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he goes through the city of Jericho, um, and he begins this climb into Jerusalem. And as he's leaving Jericho on this climb, this blind man who's named in the in the account in Mark 10, 46, this blind man who's named Bartimaeus comes running out after him, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So, um, so this is a good, I, this is a great example of this, of, of an, of an account like this, because in the gospel of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, Luke records virtually the same thing happening. Jesus, um, that a blind man comes running up, um, and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man is not named, but it's a very similar encounter. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Which is what he says to Bartimaeus. Um, But this account in Luke 18 happens as Jesus is approaching Jericho, not as he's leaving Jericho. Okay? Now, you want to get even more muddy in this. In Matthew, Matthew has another account of Jesus leaving Jericho to go up to Jerusalem. And and he, he does heal a blind man, but it's not just one blind man, it's two blind men. And they both say, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David, which is almost the exact same thing that um, Bartimaeus says in Mark and the line man says in Luke. So here's the question. Are these all different events? Or are they all the same event that are remembered but recorded differently because of the different intentions of the gospel writers? So, um, So anyway... Even you even add to that that Matthew has actually another account of two blind men being healed by Jesus up in um, Galilee. So, so all this to say, this is a, this is complex. Like, what do you do? Like, if you're looking at this and you're thinking about the life of Jesus and the historical Jesus, you're like, is this? Do I put this as one event, 
or is this two events or is this three events? Like what three different events? Like what is going on with this? Okay. So my, my particular sense of this would be that this is, um, this is one event, but that they are, it's being recorded in different ways because of the various intentions and aims of the different gospel writers. Okay. So, um, that, that would be my approach to that. Um, and oh, and it comes back to the idea about what are we trying to do. We're, I think we what we want to do is we want to um, go after the intentions of the gospel writers. But if I am constructing a life of Jesus, I would probably say historically that this is one event. The gospel writers have liberty to record it with different intention into what they're trying to do. Okay. All right. All right, have I made enough uh, issues, enough problems? Because we haven't even gotten to the temple cleansing yet, right, in John. So as this relates to the temple cleansings, okay, or the temple incidences, they are similar. They say almost the exact same thing. They use so much of the same language. But what do we do with the issue of John's timing? Is this, is it one event or is it two events? And so this is, here basically, I'm going to just give you, walk you through the reasons why I hold that this is, uh, in John's account, we actually have a separate temple incident than we do later in the Synoptic Gospels, okay? So um, first thing that I want to say is this. I think it's clear in the Synoptics that a late temple incident, like in the Synoptics, is the inauguration of of this cru- the crucifixion of Jesus. I do think that that, historically speaking, that happens. Um, and um, this is after a period of popularity, a sizable following, after the triumphal entry. The, th- the authorities can no longer ignore Jesus. Jesus has expressly called out their corruption. He calls them a den of robbers. I mean, it's a cave of extortionists. Like, he really lays it on them there. They can't ignore it. So I do think that that is true. I think what's interesting is that John, though he records a triumphal entry, he does not record the late temple cleansing. Now, I, I, what I'm going to argue is that that's kind of stock for John. John will not record significant events, and I'm going to talk about um, why that is. Okay, um, One of the differences that I think allows this temple cleansing, the, the John temple cleansing, the temple incident, to allow it to be historical early in Jesus' career is that it does not come after a triumphal entry. It does not come after a period of popularity. Actually, Jesus is a relative unknown. He's only done uh, this kind of miracle in Cana, He only, and that's secretively. He only has a handful of followers. Uh, this is not preceded by... Um, by the triumphal entry. So I do think that you have two different circumstances of this. This would not land Jesus on a Roman cross. This is just, he shows up and does a first time, uh, a first time disruption. And they're like, Hey, what's your deal? And then, and then the, the people essentially is that they are the, the temple authorities win the argument with Jesus. Um, so Jesus is not here calling out the corruption of the temple as much as he's calling out the, the the recent but unpopular decision to bring the sacrifices into the more convenient confines of the temple complex. So we talked about that, that it had been a, it was a recent decision. Nobody really liked that decision. And Jesus is just kind of doing what everybody else says. 
Like he's just kind of putting that into into words what everybody else is already thinking. So I do think that um, uh, that that Jesus the, the circumstances of this are, would not land Jesus on a Roman cross in this first one. I think also when you think about the 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 temple the Jewish temple leadership is also if you look in the book of Acts. When Peter and John, when they heal the guy and they have this temple disruption kind of a thing, they get arrested and they're like told, hey, don't do this again, right? Nothing, no no big problem. But when they do it a second time, they're brought in and they're beaten pretty good. And like, and then Peter's put in prison. They're going to, they're going to kill him. So I do think that like there is, it does seem like there's this policy of like, you do it once you get a warning, you do it twice, and you you know there are serious consequences. If we follow that pattern, then it does make some sense that Jesus could have had an early temple cleansing a couple years earlier, and then two years later or three years later, he might have had a final temple cleansing with a little bit more, with more following, with more velocity, with more uh, a little bit more vitriol towards the leaders, and that is that kind of ends his ministry. I would also add in that um, John, the nature of the gospel of John, and this is one of the things that I've made some mention of in the sermon series, is that John is intentionally supplemental. In other words, the way I read the gospel of John, John is familiar with the traditions of the other gospels, that John is familiar with with the writings of the other Gospels. I would just say the interconnectedness of the early Jesus movement, you would not have a a Matthew, a Mark, or a Luke out there in circulation without other people already knowing it, without other apostles knowing it. John would have been a keeper of those traditions. He would have been aware of these things. So when John writes his Gospels, I think he's like, hey, I know you guys already have Mark— or Luke, or Matthew, I'm going to give some more information, some supplemental information. I might include some of the things that they say, but I'm going to include supplements to that. So John adds events that other gospel writers do not include, but at the same time, he omits key events and key things that all the other gospel writers include, like, for example, the John the Baptist episode. John never records Jesus being baptized by John, John the Baptist, that is. All the other gospel writers record Jesus being baptized. John, the gospel of John, does not record John the Baptist uh, baptizing Jesus. So I think that John is saying, yeah, we know that John baptized Jesus, but he's going to record some other stuff, and he's going to record the witness of John the Baptist into that. Um. I also think it's significant when it comes to the Last Supper that um, all the other Gospels include the words of institution. This is my body, which is for you, take and eat. This is my blood poured out for you, take and drink. They, the words of institution are all recorded by the other Gospels. John does not record those. But John does record feet washing, and he does record other other things when it comes to the Last Supper. So he does record the Last Supper, but he records it in a different manner. Okay. So he excludes important things, but he includes other things. So he, he of the things that he includes that other gospel writers don't include, um, 
He recorded the, the water to wine miracle is only in John. The conversation with Nicodemus is only in John. The healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, that's only in John. The healing of the man born blind and sending him down to the pool of Siloam, that's only in John. The raising of Lazarus is only in John. So he records, he's, he's supplementing, what I believe he's doing is he's supplementing the gospel tradition. Um, so, and we already mentioned that how we can have this kind of phenomena where John will record an event, but will exclude something from it. So like he records the triumphal entry, but he does not record the second temple cleansing. Not because he didn't think it happened, but because he knows, because he knows his audience would naturally already know this through the other writers. So what I think he's doing early on is that in the first so John gives a unique in the first five chapters of John, if you take if you take the temple episode and just put it on the side, in the first five chapters of John, none of the events in the first five chapters of John can be found in the synoptics. So what I think you have in John's account of the temple episode early is that John gives a unique story that no other gospel gives, like the water to wine, uh, the 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 um the conversation with Nicodemus, like the healing of the pool, the invalid at the pool, like the man born blind, that these are unique stories no other gospel gives, and that that is what that's what's going on with this early episode. Okay, I also do think that what John is doing. So one interesting thing is that in um in the synoptics, particularly in Mark, in Mark fourteen, when Jesus is is in tri- on trial before Caiaphas. Um, the witnesses say something to the effect um, of, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But then it says, but their testimony did not agree. They were saying something like that. Now, Jesus says nothing like that in the synoptics, ever. In the temple cleansing, it's only, you know, um, this is my house, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. You've made a den of thieves. Um, But if what John records, that he has an earlier temple incident, and he says this, destroy this temple, or you will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, okay, I think it makes sense that what John is recording is he's kind of giving actually information about why they had, they were remembering back two years earlier when Jesus came that first time and they said, hey, didn't he say something like he's going to destroy the temple, but he never says he's going to destroy the temple. He says, you're going to destroy the temple. But then, and in three days, I'll build another. He actually says, in three days, I will raise it up. So they, this this kind of cryptic statement, they have a hard time remembering a couple years out. Okay. Um. I would say that it also makes sense that there needs to be some event that gets Jesus on the radar of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, because in Mark 3, it talks about there are Jewish leaders, Pharisees, and scribes that are coming down from Jerusalem to check Jesus out. Um, Why are they coming to check Jesus out? Is his reputation growing in Galilee, or does he get on the radar with this early temple cleansing? All right. So, um, so ultimately, ultimately, I would say um, this first event, this this first public event 
of a temple cleansing. He goes in and disrupts. They ask him for a sign. He says something, you know, uh, destroy this temple. I will rebuild. I'll raise it up in three days. And they're like, ah, it took 46 years to build this. You're not going to do this. And they're like, get out of here, you idiot. And so they dismiss him. But but then he hangs around for a while. He performs more signs. They're not recorded in John. Um, but it says that he performs more signs in John. And then gets him on the radar. Three years later, he re- he returns. And the second time he comes, what he says cuts deep to the powers that be. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. And then he it comes on the heels of this populist entry through a messianic gate. He curses the fig tree. He ter- tells the parable of the wicked tenants. Like, it is on, and that is really what gets him killed. So when he's tried in the trial, both of the temple incidents are recounted, um, and um, and that eventually winds him up on a Roman cross. And so, so essentially, that's my particular understanding of what John is doing with the temple incident. Obviously, look, this this podcast is like thirty minutes. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go through all of this on a Sunday morning. But I appreciate that you made it this far through the podcast in the weeds. I hope this was geeky and nerdy enough for you. If it um, was a little too much, obviously, um, you know, you didn't have to listen all the way through, but I'm glad you did. All right. Well, this is great. We're going to continue on our, um, if you want to hear the sermon, obviously you can go back and listen to, again, the October 30th, 2022 sermon, and that'll give a little bit of a little bit more application of this, but this gets you into a little bit more of the academic in the weeds about the temple incident in the Gospel of John.